All right. Good morning, everybody. Or again, good evening, good afternoon, wherever. With all of our online presence, it could be it could be anytime. So all you insomniacs or wherever you are catching us, I know that we have a lot of our DCC family on vacation. They're out. It's summertime. They're out doing things out in the world. So wherever, whenever you are, I'm so glad that you are taking the time to listen uh, to the conclusion of the book of Job. Ten months we've been in the book of Job. Can you believe that? Man, before I get to that, and there, as Pastor Gabe said, uh, the Lord gave me some great revelation. I'm so just, ugh, I'm so electric, uh, electrified. I'm trying to avoid the word excited, but I can't. So I'm excited to share it with you. But before, before I get there, I want you to hear me. I have something that's important, especially for those of you who are out there and who aren't physically here today, but for all of you in-house. Every week, we pray over the offering. Every week we do that. We lift it up to God. And the way that I was taught in ministry and the way that just resonates in my heart as right is God is our provider. So rather than to pass a plate and make it a a personal thing, we pray over it, we lift it up to the Lord, and then we trust that God is going to touch people's hearts and that they are going to to then give back to the kingdom. But I have to just let you know, through summer, we have, or through the, all the time of COVID and going into spring, we've seen our attendance numbers start creeping back. Family is starting to come back in. People are starting to be a little bit more comfortable. But I know during the uncertainty of 2020 especially, a lot of people who give typically recurring giving online, a lot of people have paused that because of the uncertainty of jobs and life and everything else. And even those who attend regularly a lot of people have either cut back or paused that entirely. And I want you, I just, I have to be honest. This is not something typically they would say in Pastoring 101, this is what you need to do. We are down in our tithe and in our income for the church significantly year over year. And it has not picked up. Even though attendance has, the income, the tithe has not picked up over that time. So we are down significantly. So I want to, I just want to ask you, this isn't me, Pastor Bob, asking you. I want to ask you to be honest and pray to the Lord about this. Pray about, maybe it's a one-time gift. Maybe it's just simply resuming what you had been doing. Maybe, and here's the simple fact, over 50% of church attenders and those who watch online do not tie it to the church. That needs to change people. Scripture tells us, and I'm not going to teach on this, but we need to give back to the church so that we can accomplish our mission. Our food pantry, all the things that we do, that hasn't stopped or paused. In fact, that has ramped up over this time of uncertainty. And we need to continue doing the work of Jesus in our community and in our world. So I just want to challenge you. Every single week, our offering boxes are down and down and down. And that's not because of attendance. That's not because of engagement. I think that's because of just a cautious, I don't want to use fearful, but a cautious spirit in people. Like, let's hold off until we know. I want to challenge you to let's stop limiting what God can do. And let's open the floodgates. And let's allow the body to be the body. And, and by that, we can bless those around us. Amen? All right, so enough of that. Let's move on. Let's move on. So we are, again, 10 months, August of last year is when we started in the book of Job. And to me, 
Every single chapter, every single verse has been something that has taught me something. And I hope you've seen it that way. I'm not going to, usually I spend a lot of time kind of recapping what's been going on the last couple of weeks. There'd be too much to recap. So if you've missed any of it, if you're online or you're in-house here, just go back to our archives through our website or through YouTube, and you can catch the previous messages to see. But what I am going to talk about, I'm just, I just want to kind of revisit our initial reason why we are even in this. You ever thought, why are we spending so much time in this book? Number one, because it's the Word of God, and that's what we're supposed to do here. But you think about all the questions. The book of Job raises so many questions. And it raises more questions than it answers, without a doubt. Very, very simple, basic questions like, why does God allow evil in the world? I've got, I've got 10 bullet points of all these questions, but let's just boil it down to this. Why does God allow evil in the world? Why does he allow that? If he is sovereign and he's loving and he's all these things that we're taught that he is, why does he allow these things? So I'm hoping that through this series, through through hearing the back and forth of Job's friends and and Job uh, being questioned by God and Job's doubts and wondering aloud, (coughs) I'm hoping that it has challenged some of the ways that you look at those things. And I hope also that it has equipped you to answer those questions for those people who might ask you. If God is so loving, why do all these terrible things happen in the world? Because we're taught from, basically from birth, we're taught that pain is bad and comfort is good, right? Suffering is bad. If you're not suffering, then that's good. And we should all pursue not suffering. We should all pursue comfort, Anything, you know, storms are bad, calm is good, all these things. And we're taught that this, this good-bad binary, if you will, it's either this or it's this. That's not the way the world operates. And if that's where we're stuck, if we're stuck in this, God rewards obedience and punishes sin. And so if you're being punished or something's bad, yours, you've sinned or you've failed somehow, if that's how we see it, it is going to be impossible to reconcile a lot of the things that we see in Scripture. It'll be literally impossible. One, the first one that always comes to my mind, and you know what, I'm going to read it to you anyway. James 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Most of us if not all of us, have at least heard that scripture at some point. It's very familiar. But I want to ask you a question. When it says, let endurance have its perfect result, what's the perfect result? You ever thought about that? I usually just kind of skim over that part. I know perfect result, okay, that's, that's a good result. But what is really the perfect result? And so I prayed about that a little bit. And here's a scripture I found that describes the perfect result. This is This is Paul describing this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is the first one we have on screen. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So the perfect result of encountering various trials, the testing of your faith, producing endurance, the perfect result of that 
is that we are being transformed. We are being molded into a reflection of the glory of the Lord. That's what it's all about. And it's only possible if we allow ourselves to set aside this good, bad, binary assumption of of pain is bad and comfort is good. If we can set that aside and see trials differently and trust fully in God. I mean trust fully in God. If we can do that, then we can start to see trials. We can start to see pain and, and and very and a trial is not always pain. Sometimes a trial is a good thing in terms of, of it feels good. Moving to a new house, a marriage, these sorts of things. You know that they've said that, that being getting married or moving into a new house is equally as stressful as the death of a loved one. Equally as stressful. So even though we would see it as good, it still would be considered a trial. But we can see those things differently. And if we aren't able then to trust in the Lord's purposes through all these things, then we're really, we're no better than Job's friends are. Because we have reduced God to this box to where if I see this outcome, it has to be because of this. We put him in that box and that's not, God does not belong in a box. So as we finish this long and sometimes painful, and I've heard the word arduous, Uh, thrown out there from time to time, journey through the book of Job, we all have asked ourselves, I have, why is it so necessary to spend so much time on such an old book? Isn't there stuff that's a little more modern, maybe maybe only 2,000 years old, (laughs) that can help us with this? Isn't this whole thing, isn't the whole book of Job just this cautionary tale about a guy who went through some bad stuff and how we should, you know, avoid that bad stuff? Maybe boil it all down to just a pamphlet. Wouldn't that be possible? But if that's your mindset, as it is many people's mindset, then this whole thing, these 10 months, have been a colossal waste of your time. If that's our mindset, because, I mean, I hear it all the time. Didn't Jesus Christ come in the flesh so that we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore? Isn't that part of the new covenant of Christ is so we don't have to worry about that? I would answer that with the words of Jesus himself. Who, when he was asked about this, he said, Matthew 5, 17, 18, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Let me stop there. The law and the prophets... That's what he had for Scripture. We call it the Old Testament, okay? It was the Holy Scriptures for him. There was nothing old about it. It's what he studied. It's what he knew. It's what he taught from. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Job, when you look at Jewish history, and even the way that, that most Bibles are divided, Job is considered a prophet. Not just a guy who some stuff, and we're going to hear a story about Job. Job is considered a prophet, meaning, by the definition of the word prophet, he has a word for God's people. He has something to teach God's people, not only at that time, but throughout history. And we need to look at the book of Job through that lens. What's in there that we are being taught that will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus? If we look at it that way, 
it changes the way that we look about it. At least it should. The book of Job, I, told, I said this at the very beginning, it's the first written, the first one to be put pen to paper book of all of Scripture. It was the first one. And it ties the entirety of Scripture together. If you look at that as the first written down book, and then the last one, which is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, this book ties them all together. It's about spiritual warfare. It's about spiritual battles. It's about the enemy trying to steal the blessing that the Lord has given you. That's what it's about. And all the way from the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, all the way to the final battles in Revelation, it teaches us about the difficulty of living righteously, especially in the face of adversity and trial. It teaches us about the power of being able to maintain your righteousness, especially in the face of being attacked, and then how impossible it is to do it on your own. That's why we need Jesus. We see this battle with Job. We have much more ammunition to fight these things than Job did, but the battle is the same. The battle is the same. Satan wants to steal your testimony. He wants to steal your testimony. It's the same thing all the way back. Job knew that God was good. Job knew in his heart that he could trust in God, and he lived his life like that. But then Satan comes in, and Satan's number one goal is to steal that certainty, steal what Job thought that he knew of God, and take it away. Now, your question might be, is my testimony really that important? And so many times in churches, we've boiled it down to, let's, let's hear your testimony. And your testimony is a three-minute story of how you met Jesus. Or, or I was once this, and now I'm that. It's a three-minute story, and we boil it down to, to that quick of a thing. Is my testimony really that important? Here's a question for my, for my Bible scholars. Anybody remember in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, what it says it took to defeat the enemy ultimately. Two things. Anybody remember? The blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's Revelation 12, 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. That's how they overcame all of the schemes of Satan. Centuries Centuries of battle, spiritual warfare, back and forth, and that's how they overcome, ultimately, the enemy. So yes, your testimony is that important. Your testimony is a crown jewel that, this, that Satan is trying to steal from you. And it's hard to hang on to. It's hard to hang on to and not have it be tarnished. It's so, it's so much more about, here's all the bad things that have happened to me, and yet, look, I'm still alive. It's so much more about that. It's how we handle those things that come our way. This is what we see happening in the book of Job. Life isn't just about making it to the finish line. Like I gave my heart to Jesus when I was 10. I've been saved. My place in heaven is secure ever since then. So really now I'm just trying to bide my time until I make it to the finish line and I end up in heaven. That is not what life is about. Life is about living a life that gives glory to God. And it's about being the bride of Christ. We're going to talk more about that. This is the revelation that the Lord gave me. That the church is the bride of Christ. And this scripture, believe it or not, in this chapter, as Job concludes, 
It is about us being the bride of Christ. Spoiler alert, that's what we're going to get to at the end. So hang on. So at the beginning of our study, I proposed that God uses the pain and trial in our lives to elevate us to a place we wouldn't want to go. Remember that? I've said it, I've said it many, many times. And as our study concludes, we're going to see that God's message to us today is the same as it was to Job then. The enemy is relentless. The enemy is relentless in his attempts to steal, kill, and destroy. But the reward for perseverance and an unshakable faith in God is worth the pain. It's worth the pain of what we called a couple weeks ago the refining fires. And last week, we talked about when God was speaking to Job finally, how behemoth and Leviathan are representative of demonic spirits. Demonic spirits that Satan uses, that he controls. And Job had almost lost his battle with that spirit, specifically the spirit of pride. And God is refining that off of him. But in this chapter, as we conclude, chapter 42 of the book of Job, we're going to see Job's friends rebuked by God, Job restored and then some, but then we're also going to see this foreshadowing of the atoning work of Jesus Christ for his bride. We're going to see that all come to a conclusion today, and that's what I'm so excited about. So listen, what I'm going to do, (coughs) I'm going to read through the entire chapter, chapter 42, then we'll go back and revisit, okay? But now keep in mind, now you can follow along. I use an NASB. Um, if you have that, you can read along. If not, you can just listen or, or read, follow along in your version. But keep in mind the scene, okay? Job's friends, bless you. Job's friends are standing around him watching this happen, okay? They've had their speeches. They've taken a step back as they're like, he's not listening. So they stand back. And then God appears out of this whirlwind, what an amazing sight that had to be. But they're still standing there. They grow silent, and we don't hear about them, but they're still standing there. They didn't, it doesn't say they left and they went somewhere else. And they're sitting there as this whirlwind appears, and God starts to speak directly to Job. And it's got to be this combination of just awe and, ooh, you're going to get it now, Job. Here it is, and that's kind of how it starts out, right, with God's questioning of Job, and and they got to be just sitting there going, here it comes, here it comes, just waiting for Job to just be hammered by God. So that's the scene. I'm going to read all of Job 42, 1 to 17. Read it too. Here we go. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. Who is this who conceals advice without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Please listen, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. Verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself and my servant Job will pray for you. 
For I will accept him so as to not do to you as your foolishness deserves, because you have not spoken to me what is trustworthy as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nemethite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord also restored the fortunes of Job which he prayed for his friend, when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased double all that Job had. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they sympathized with him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of money, and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. In all the land, no women were found as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. We all like a happy ending, don't we? After all this, we all like a happy ending. Listen to this, though. Some scholars, in fact, many scholars, believe that this happy ending actually takes away from the story of Job. It somehow diminishes the story of Job. And I think if, if it diminishes from the deeper meaning, if that deeper meaning is pain and suffering just simply for the sake of pain and suffering and sin, if that's your deeper meaning that you're taking away, they're probably right. But that's not the point. That is not the point of the book of Job. So let's get into this. Let's take a deeper dive and go back into some of the scriptures and talk about this. Let's go back. Job 42, 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no plan is impossible for you. So we have to take Job's words as genuine here, that he's literally saying this. This isn't just some platitude that he's saying. And if, that, if that's really what's coming from his heart, that shows great faith in, his, in Job. Job's great faith in his heart and great comfort, saying, okay, I know that nothing is impossible. Nothing you want to do can be thwarted and that, that you are good. Nothing can stop your plan. That show, that's a great statement of comfort from Job. Job 42.5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. So what he's saying there is I knew what I knew of you was handed down by my ancestors and maybe kind of augmented or supplemented by what my friends are saying and those people around me have said. So I knew of you by all those things, and it was definitely skewed way heavily towards the idea of justice, right? Retribution, if you do something, you're going to pay for it. And almost no mention or no idea of mercy in there. So it was way skewed towards this idea of just justice. Job now sees with his eyes, sees the fullness of God. And that sees is more than just, I physically see you. I see you. And it's only possible when God reveals himself as God is right here 
to Job to see the fullness of who God is. Job 42, 6, Therefore I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. This, that, right there, that statement, that's what God has been working towards this whole time. Trying to get Job to say, okay, I see and I repent. Not of, not of the false charges, not of the made-up things that his friends are accusing him of, but of where his heart has gone, where he has allowed his heart to go and to question God's goodness, doubting God. Now note in this, he's still at this point, Job is still sitting in dust and ashes. Okay, he didn't, he's not floating around on butterfly wings right now. He's still sitting in dust and ashes covered with boils. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were probably still feeling pretty smug right now, wouldn't you think? After all this, because they're standing there watching this exchange going back with God, and they're saying, yeah, okay, Job, you finally see God? Well, we've seen him all along. So good that you're finally with us. You notice there's no mention of Elihu here? Three friends and Elihu. Remember I said Elihu was a messenger from God. That's the way I, that's the way I took it, and that's what I believe. So he just he's not rebuked. He's not included in this because he mostly spoke, although he... Got a little fleshy at times. He mostly spoke from God. So he's not being rebuked here. He may still be standing around, but he's not the target of what God is, is about to say here. Job 42, 7. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite. Okay, here it comes. He's turning now to Eliphaz, and Eliphaz is like, you can see him just like, okay, stand up straight, guys. The Lord's looking at me now. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is trustworthy as my servant Job has. Remember at the very beginning, God declares Job to be his servant? Here now at the end, he uses the word servant again and again and again, meaning nothing in God's mind has changed about who Job is. But God explicitly right here declares Job to be in the right and the friends to be wrong. Now he's addressing Eliphaz because Eliphaz is the leader, he's the eldest, he's kind of the leader of this group, represents this group. Now they had they'd not been blasphemous. They had spoken facts about God but not truth. Remember, you need to have more. You need to have wisdom added into facts for it to become truth. Their accusations against Job were false and maybe worse yet the fruit of those accusations was it caused Job to waver. It caused Job to doubt. Job 42, 8. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so as to not do to you as your foolishness deserves because you have not spoken to me what is trustworthy as my servant Job has. This idea of seven bulls, seven rams, if you read Numbers, Numbers 23 especially, where Balaam is telling Balak to do the same thing, the seven, the, the seven bulls and seven rams, it's later, this idea that God is telling Job now and Eliphaz is later put into law when we see that come up. But that didn't exist at this point. James, uh, James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Listen to this prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. God is telling Job, as the only righteous person left in the room there, to pray for his friends. 
God could have just smitten the friends and restored Job. Poof, it all happens in a cloud of dust and everything goes back to normal, happily ever after. That's not how it happened. God said, Job, you have held on, you have persevered through all of these trials. I'm declaring you righteous right now and we are gonna use your prayers to save your friends. Friends in air quotes, right? Because we see how they've taught him, how they've treated him, that is. So question, would you be able to, so you, we don't know how long really Job has sat on the trash heap, but he's still sitting in the garbage heap covered with boils and sores, and his friends are still pointing fingers at him, maybe not right now, but they had all this time, and they lectured him, and they went back and forth and accused him of all these things. Could you then, you immediately pivot and pray for them? Could you? I don't know that I could. But we see this all through the book of Job. We've seen Job being this foreshadow of Jesus, and it continues right here, where Job is interceding for those who have persecuted him, those who have not been his friend. And he immediately turns with a good heart. Remember this from Luke 23, 34. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness. First thing he does, praise to the Father, forgive them. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. So even though he's praying to forgive them, they are in the middle of dividing up his stuff. It's not like they said, oh, we repent, oh, we're okay. And he said, okay, Father, forgive them. They were actively persecuting Jesus at this time, as the friends were actively persecuting Job at this time, and yet God says, pray for them. We see Jesus model that behavior. Now again, Job is being asked to pray for these guys while he's still sitting on the trash heap. He hasn't been, he hasn't been restored yet. He hasn't been elevated. He hasn't been cured. He's still sitting there in pain on the trash heap. All of his losses laid out in front of him. And God is saying, pray for these guys who are standing there in their fine clothes. They've got their entourage of camels and what they traveled with. And they've got their homes to go back to. And he's saying, you need to pray for them. God's grace and mercy is that his heart is to instruct and restore those who stray, not to destroy them. Because in a movie today, a lightning bolt would hit the three friends and they'd be gone. Dust. That's not God's heart. It's to restore them. Now note that, that act right there, that little phrase, pray for your friends, that directly contradicts the theology that these three friends were immersed in, right? They did wrong. God accused them. God said, you have done wrong. Job has not. And yet, I'm going to show you mercy. That's not a concept that these guys would have had. God said, I'm angry with you. But he chooses to show mercy. Wisely, they do exactly as they're instructed to do. And the Lord hears Job's prayers. When it says the Lord accepted Job, it means the Lord brought him into his presence and listened to his prayers. Now, only then after that do we see Job's restoration. Those prayers from Job wasn't this magic genie prayer. It wasn't, Lord, give me this. Lord, do this. Lord, restore this for me. Or what I hear sometimes now from 
well-meaning, I'll be generous, Christians who want to pray for someone around them, Lord, help them to see the error of their ways. That is a prayer of self-righteousness. And that is not how we should be praying. And that's clearly not how Job did. Job prayed for these people, and the Lord accepted those prayers. Job 42.10, the Lord also restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased double all that Job had. That goes all the way back to Exodus, like Exodus 22, if you want, the, the idea of doubling. In Exodus, where it first lays out this idea of double retribution, it's when the thief has stolen something. You're restored double. Didn't the thief try to steal everything that Job had? This restitution doesn't just show up in Job's bank account. Okay, it's not like all of a sudden I've gone to the ATM. You've seen those stories lately where people go to the ATM and it's got $50 billion in it. It's been a, it's been a thing lately. <coughs> it's really been a thing. And if it sounds too good to be true, it is. So, okay. So let's just leave it there. But this restitution for Job, this blessing, this restored the fortunes, it doesn't just show up like all of a sudden Job looks over and goes, oh, look. There's all the cattle and my money and my house is back and I'm healthy. and all the... It doesn't happen like this. Here's how it happens. Job 42, 11. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all who had known him before came before him. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they sympathized with him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of money, and each a ring of gold. God uses his friends, his family, and all who had known him to restore Job's fortunes. God uses us in his purposes all the time. So in keeping with this idea of double restitution, let's go on. Job 42, 12. The Lord blessed the latter, latter days of Job more than the beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. Remember all the way back in Job 1.3, it says his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Okay, the Lord has doubled his possessions there. It's just a one-for-one, one, just doubled, right? The restitution also then extended to Job's family. Remember, he lost all of his children and all of his servants and everything. Job 42, 13. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Okay, wait a minute. I'm no mathematician, but seven sons and three daughters, that's 10 kids. That's what he lost at the beginning. That's not double. What's going on here that that's not doubled, and yet the oxen and all the animals were doubled? The original 10 were not stolen. They were just relocated. They're waiting in heaven for Job to get there. It's a glimpse of Job saying, you'll see them again. You'll see them again. So he gives them 10 more on earth, coupled with the 10 that are in heaven waiting for him. Cool, right? Okay, so I know, I know it's been a long time. We've been sitting here a long time. Give me your attention because this is where it all, this is where the whole thing comes together. Job 42, 14, he named the first, okay, you're talking about his daughters, remember? He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. 
42.15, In all the land, no women were found as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritances among their brothers. Only two verses, 14 and 15. They speak volumes, so we got to look at this a little bit closer. Number one, why are the daughters named? doesn't name the sons. Really unusual for that time. Really unusual for all of Old Testament Scripture, really. It's not like we set that precedent back at the beginning because when it talked about his children at the beginning, it didn't name them then either. Why is it naming them? Why did the daughters get an inheritance? That wasn't normal then either. And yet, the last two verses here, 14 and 15, talk about specifically the names of the three daughters. Doesn't go on to name all the sons either. This wasn't customary. Remember in Numbers 27.8, it kind of lays out the idea of inheritance. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. That's the only situation where a daughter would get inheritance. Now, there is a lot of scholarly commentary on these two verses, as you can probably imagine. What the daughter's names mean, what could it mean, um, there's a lot less on why they get an inheritance. Most of, it, most of it boils down to a statement like this. The significance of, the, of these details are lost to the ages and to translation. We can't dismiss the Word of God like that. We can't just say, this is so out of the ordinary, let's just set it aside because we don't understand it. Let's just set it aside because it doesn't fit the flow, and who knows if it really means anything or not. Nothing in Scripture is there by accident. It's not a mistake. It's not a filler. God wants us to see this, and I believe that he opened my eyes to this. Let's look at this in a larger context of prophecy. Remember, Job is described as a prophet, meaning what happens to Job is meant to teach us something. It's meant to be a word for us, help for us. Let's look at that. Let's look at it in the context of what Job is going through here is a promise to be fulfilled in Jesus. Again, I said at the beginning, the book of Job ties the entirety of Scripture together from all the way from the beginning in Genesis and the battles to Revelation when the Lord Jesus returns for his bride. We've seen this spiritual warfare play out in Satan's attacks using his wife and his friends, to taunt and tempt and confuse all these things, to accuse him with crimes, assaulting his character, causing him to doubt what he thought he knew, tempting him with the spirit of pride that God may not be everything that Job thought and maybe somehow Job knew better, encouraging him to rely on his own wisdom to find a way out. But here's where we come. Job finally realizes Despite his pain and despite the temptation and the, and the temptation to curse God that, that his friends and his, even his wife was encouraging to, to do, that the only thing that can possibly give him peace and comfort in the face of what he's going through, especially the unexplainable things he's going through, is not the answer to why all this happened. And it's not seeing his tormentors punished because we don't see that either. But it's actually a full surrender to God Almighty, the only thing that can give him comfort facing what he's facing is a full and unconditional surrender to God Almighty. 
So let's go back and again, take a look at the daughters. Job 42, 14, he named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. Jemima, let's look at that word study. Do a word study on the names. Jemima, okay, it's just simply, these are all Hebrew words, so no need to translate what the word really is. Jemima means day of the dove, or it could mean something a day as fair as the dove. Remember, a dove represents the Holy Spirit coming down and alighting on Jesus. Keziah, it's actually pronounced Kesha. We see today pronounced as Kesha, but it's Ketziah or Keziah. And it means what it is, it's a spice or a fragrance. In fact, we see in Scripture, Psalm 45a, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh, aloes, and Kesha. They're burial spices. And these are, Kesha is not frequently mentioned, but it's one of the burial spices used for Jesus. It's also used to celebrate the marriage of the king here in Psalm. That's what we see these spices, the marriage of the king to his bride. And then burial spices for Jesus. So through that anointing with, with Kesha, the bride is fully consecrated to join the bridegroom. I'm getting goosebumps already as I go through this again. Number three, Karen Hapuch. What that means, this one takes a little bit deeper. It means, literally, it means the horn of antimony or antimony. The horn of antimony. What is, what is that? Antimony is a rare earth mineral. Simply, that's what it is. And a horn is a container. So it's a container of a rare earth mineral. What they would do is they used it for cosmetics back in those days. We don't do that anymore because I think it has trace amounts of radioactivity. So we don't use that anymore. But here's what that foreshadows then, the radiance, the beauty of the end-time bride of Christ. These are all characteristics of the end-time bride of Christ, the Holy Spirit lying on the bride, the beauty, the fragrance, consecration, and the purity of the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 describes this. Listen, we've, we've heard this quoted in, in weddings, but think about the idea of the end time bride of Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might, represent, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's the end time bride, and that's us. His church, his bride, the radiant perfection, the holiness, the purity of the bride of Christ is the inheritance that Satan is trying to steal. From the very beginning, the vision of the Apostle John describes what heaven will be like for those who persevere and remain pure. This is Revelation 22 to 27. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord of God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. 
and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by light. It goes on down to verse 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The enemy is relentless trying to steal that from you. That's what the book of Job is about. The reward, though, the reward for perseverance and an unshakable faith in God is worth the pain of God's refining fires. Job 42 ends the last two verses, 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. So what's the, how do we apply this to our lives today? How do we apply, there's so much, right? Every chapter, every, every verse had something that we can apply. Here's what, Here's what I think. Number one, know that you're in a battle. Number two, stand firm in faith that God is good. God is good. No reservations, no qualifications. God is good. Don't try to fight battles in your own wisdom. Do not try to get justice for yourself. We don't see Job ever trying to get justice for himself, but we see God giving that to Job. Repent often, forgive quickly, trust fully in God, no matter what comes your way. How do you all do with all of that? Forgive quickly, repent often. I struggle with that. Job forgave and Jesus forgave. Forgave and prayed for those who wronged them, not without reservation, not with reservations, not Job, I'll forgive them if they come back around. God, I'll forgive these people who are oppressing me if they stop their ways and turn back and admit that I was right to begin with. There was none of that if. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them as they're in the middle of dividing up his clothes. There's no qualifications for a righteous prayer to God. Can you do the same? Could you do the same for your enemies? So here's how we're going to close this message. It's time to wrap this up. And I'm going to ask you, think of the one person that immediately comes to mind that you would consider your adversary. Not Satan. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your earthly adversary. One person who's a thorn in your side, a constant pain, maybe an outright enemy. Who comes to your mind? Almost all of us would have someone. It would be rare that someone didn't. And this, by the way, is someone who has truly done you wrong. We're not going to pray for them. We are going to deny the enemy the opportunity to use that as ammunition and as an inroad to come in and steal our inheritance as the bride of Christ. We're going to deny the enemy that chance. And we are going to trust in God to be our redeemer. We're going to trust in Jesus. That he did come to make it right. But we still have every opportunity to fail by not following his teaching. This is an outright demand to trust in God. And we're going to pray in humility and repentance. So thinking of that person or those people, maybe it's, maybe it's several. Maybe it's an institution. Maybe who knows what it is. But let's pray. And you can pray with me or you can pray your own. I'm just going to lead by example in the way that goes.
Father God, I repent, first of all and foremost, of judging your children. I repent of thinking pridefully that I knew better, I deserve better, I somehow am better than someone else. I repent of seeing the things that, that they have done to me only through the lens of how it affects me. And Lord, I humble myself before you and I repent. I repent of taking on that mantle of judge that doesn't belong to me. I give it back to you. And Father, I take those who have wronged me. I take those who have, who have legitimately hurt me and I give them to you for your judgment, not mine. Your judgment includes mercy. Mine doesn't. Father, I lift them up to you and I ask that you bless them. I ask that you bless them with abundance, with grace, with mercy, with an awareness of who you are, with the truth of who you are. And I pray that you bless them with the knowledge of who they are to you and that their life would be changed for the better. Father, this isn't about me. I'm not including any prayers for myself. I want to pray for those who I know who are hurting, those who are misled, those who maybe are going through things that I will never understand, battles of their own. Lord, strengthen them. Give them peace. Give them grace. Give them mercy. Father, help me to be a reflection of your grace and mercy to this world. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to go into a time of communion now. Communion is a celebration of that new covenant. It's an acceptance of that new covenant of Jesus. And so there's no better way to seal a message like this or any message or any time together than to celebrate that. So we'll do the way we'll do communion. If you're at home, I can't help you, but celebrate with us anyway. If you're here in house, over at the crosses, we've got wine, or at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers. And then Gabe and I will be serving up here. And we would love to serve you when we have wine up front here. But let's take time as we listen to worship and as we do this. If you need to continue prayers of repentance, do that. Because we need to forgive and we need to repent almost daily, if not multiple times a day. Take all the time that you need to do that and then let's worship and celebrate that through Jesus we have everything that we need and that he will be our redeemer. Amen? Amen. We also have prayer team in the back. Please take advantage of them if you need it. Um, one last reminder, the last words you'll hear me say, no service next Sunday, okay? But please join us for fellowship on Saturday. It is so important to be the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Thank you, guys.